Good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend. I'm so glad you're not at the lake. <laughs> Although we all wish we were. I understand that. Well, there are theological debates, political debates, but how many of us remember the debate of the dress? It was a 2015 online viral phenomenon. There were people that believed, that were certain when they saw this dress, they saw a blue and a black dress. Others were just as adamant that they saw a white and a gold dress. I mean, families split apart over this. <laughs> Thanksgiving, it was the blue and black side, the white and gold side. No, not really. I don't think they did. But the phenomenon really did highlight the differences that we have in perception. And it became uh, the subject of scientific studies into neuroscience and vision science. So two people can look at the same thing, a dress or whatever, fill in the blank, and see something completely different. I can look at something and be sure that what I see is actually what is there. What is, is, what isn't, isn't. Maybe not. Take a look at this video that explains a little bit why sometimes we don't see accurately. Our perception of the world around us is strongly linked to our vision, but how do you know what you're seeing is real? Can you really trust your eyes? Take for example these two gray rectangular columns, both of which are different shades of gray. Or are they? It turns out that they're the exact same, and yet, even after knowing the illusion is there, your eyes refuse to see them as the same. Introducing colors produces the same result. I promise, no trick photography or editing effects have been applied. In fact, if you look up the Munker white illusion, you'll come across many more examples. Examine them in Photoshop, and you can see that the colors are the exact same. A similar effect can be seen with this checkerboard illusion. Tile A clearly seems darker than tile B, but you know better by now, right? Even though your eyes can't see it, you know when I remove the surrounding imagery, the tiles will be the same color. So what's going on here? The truth is that scientists don't fully understand this phenomenon, and there are many complex biological and neurological factors taking place. Ultimately, our brains judge color and brightness in context. In other words, our brains compare the surrounding environment in order to create our perception. The purpose of our senses, or eyes in this case, is not to provide us with an absolute color or physical property of our external reality, but to interpret what we see as efficiently as possible in order to interact with our environment most appropriately. The tile illusion takes advantage of this phenomenon. Our brains know that shadows make objects look darker. As a result, the brain compensates by interpreting the tile as being lighter than it appears, until we take the shadow away. Perhaps the most blatant example is this gradient. The middle bar is simply one color. Remove the background gradient and it becomes obvious. Once again, the darkness of the background has affected our perception of the bar's color. Our perception is relative. So, do you still trust your eyes? Gosh, that guy talks really fast, doesn't he? So the word that stood out to me that helps me understand why I don't always see the things the way that Denise sees them is this word context. When I look at something, if I don't also look at the context of that something, I probably will not see that something accurately. I need to understand the context 
of what I'm seeing in order to understand it and see it clearly. Let's go to Disney World for a moment. I'd love to go to Disney World. Disney World that says that their success is basically all about relationships and the way they teach building relationships is through their training program. So for instance, you've got the trainee for the Dumbo flying elephant ride. And when that person is going through that training process, that individual is taught that they are not just there to operate the ride. They're there to look at and to connect with every individual. That's really hard when you got thousands of people going on the ride, but they're trained to see more than just a rider on a ride. They're trained to see an individual. So example, there's a kid who has leukemia and through Make-A-Wish Foundation, this child is at Disney World and their biggest dream is to ride the Dumbo, the flying elephant ride. And so when that child is in line, that trainer knows about this and that ride operator knows about this. And so when the ride operator sees that child, oh, he's, he or she are, or they are not just looking at how to operate the ride, but they're looking at this child and saying, I am a part of fulfilling the dream of this child. And so seeing the context of that rider builds a relationships and helps the operator of the ride see that rider in a truer way. So my question to us is, what do we see when we see our own town? For the next three weeks, we're going to look at our community, whether that is Springfield, Fair Grove, Republic, Ozark, Rogersville, Willard, or whatever it is. And we are looking at it under the title of serving or proudly serving local. Proudly serving local. Now, the series is going to culminate on September 17 with our annual Venues Palooza. We began Venues Palooza in 2013, the very first year of our existence as a church. And the idea of Venues Palooza is that we forego our Sunday morning singing and teaching service, and the community that gathers here at the venues on Battlefield will then go out into the larger community and serve uh, dozens of organizations. And so we will be here, but not in here for teaching and for singing. So I hope you'll get involved in that, and I hope you'll be a part of that Buy yourself a t-shirt, and uh, it will see proudly serving local. You can go and sign up for that at the desk at the end of our service today. You can go to the venues.org slash venuespalooza and sign up that way. But today, we're going to look at this word proudly under the series title, Proudly uh, Serving Locally. Our two local universities, uh, Drury and, F and MSU, uh, take pride in their school, and they call us to take pride in our school. How did MSU do against Kansas last night? A good first half. I didn't see any of the sports this morning. Good first half. Well, at least we had a good first half playing a very tough school. So take pride in MSU uh, Bears and take pride in the Drury Panthers, not just the sports program, but the entire organizations. MSU even has a, a, a pride marching band. 
So today I want us to think about our communities. What makes us proud of the communities in which we live? You know, Springfield itself has, uh, somehow I don't have all my slides up here. There's supposed to be a blank slide right there. We'll just leave it right there. Somehow, uh, think about your community. And as I think about Springfield, I think, well, we're the home of Route 66. We're the home of uh, a very, very unique version of cashew chicken. First served in Grove Supper Club in 1963. Uh, I'm so proud of Springfield's arts community. I love our theaters. I love uh, Juanita Kay. I love Landers. And I love our uh, art museum and so many other displays of art. I'm proud of Askinosi chocolate. I can eat that chocolate bar after I save money for a little while. And, uh, <laughs> but it is very much worth it. We don't eat it often. But I can eat Askinosi's chocolate without feeling guilty because I know that uh, there are no calories because I'm investing every time I buy an Askinosi chocolate bar, I am investing in a company that is making the world a better place and that just erases all of those calories. That is true. I love Springfield and I love the Ozarks because of our parks, because of our nature trails and our love of nature in this, uh, in this area. I was born in Springfield in 1956 at Burge Hospital before it became Cox. My dad was pastor at Macedonia Baptist on, on West uh, Sunshine over there. And my extended family on both sides, my moms and my dads, have roots here. My grandpa Murdoch, mom's dad, pastored Boulevard Baptist Church when it was on National and Blaine for almost 40 years. My grandpa Wright pastored Pythian Avenue Baptist Church for several years, followed by my uncle pastoring there. And Grandpa Wright pastored several churches in southwest Missouri. Uh, years and years and years ago, Dad bought uh, two, or bought, they were just selling the plots by three at that point, at Danforth Cemetery in Springfield. That's where my grandma and grandpa and Uncle Paul and Aunt Mary are buried. And Dad bought plots there for when he and Mother were, were to die, but, but they were uh, buried in Little Rock. So I called Danforth Cemetery last week to see if I could transfer Dad's plots to Denise and me. We're making funeral plans for the future, so Daniel and Devin don't have to worry about that when the time comes. And the administrator of Danforth Cemetery uh, said, yes, we'll be glad to uh, transfer that to you. I said, well, do you need proof that I am who I say I am? He said, no, you knew all the family members. And so he said, you're okay. And he said, by the way, uh, when I mentioned my grandma Ruby, right, he said, uh, your grandma was my teacher when I was in second grade in Stratford. And uh, he said she taught second grade, and the next year they transferred her to teach a class of kids with special needs. Uh, my grandma went to Springfield Teachers College when it was, uh, before it became SMS, before it became MSU. And so when Denise and I moved to Springfield from Arkansas back in 1984 to pastor a Baptist church here, it kind of felt like I was coming home because I started my life right here in Springfield, Missouri. And I feel towards Springfield a lot like what James Baldwin feels toward uh, 
America when he said, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. And I don't want to be critical of Springfield, but I love our town and I love our area and I'm very proud to be a resident and I'm so proud I wear the Springfield flag socks on a on a weekly basis I do wash them before I wear them again the next day but I do but there are some things that I and we all can be critiques about and that I'm sad about and I'm disappointed about in our town I'm disappointed and sad about our poverty about our uh, homeless situation. I met with a former city council person this past week for coffee, and they told me that they're, in their opinion, the biggest problem we have in Springfield and probably Greene County is our income disparity. And I'm very disappointed and sad about that. I'm sad about our problem. We're the rated the highest in the state in domestic violence. And I'm sad about our substance abuse and our racism that's not as overt as uh, in some places, I guess, but, but it just is kind of underneath the surface. I'm very sad about our failure as a city to uh, codify the rights of uh, the community of LGBTQ. Uh, and I want to talk about a little bit about how we understand what's going on in our city a little bit by looking at a Hebrew passage in Chronicles. Chronicles is a difficult book to read in that it has a lot of history and some of us may not like history, but First Chronicles is kind of a companion to First Samuel. They both tell the history of David uh, and Saul, his predecessor. And, and in this chapter, David is kind of uh, rebelling against King Saul. King Saul has made it very clear that David uh, is not welcome in the court in his administration anymore and and so david is gathering together from the 12 tribes of israel different soldiers that he can uh from which he can create an army and so first chronicles 12 talks about uh there were six thousand uh, soldiers from this tribe eight thousand from this tribe and they all had their certain uh skills and abilities and then you get to first uh, Chronicles 12 and verse 32 when we read this from Issachar there were 200 leaders and all their relatives at their command and they understood the times and what Israel should do that Hebrew word for understood is such a powerful word it's in the feminine case and so it kind of tells us that there is a a sense of uh, of discernment that some people have that other people may not have and the word, Hebrew word for understood, literally means between. And it talks about a person who's able to take two similar items and discern the difference between those two similar items. For example, Denise is an interior designer. And I'm just amazed at Denise's ability to discern between the uh, 12,560 different shades of white. This is a color thing just of whites right here. And she doesn't even have to look at them to know what the names are. And she knows the difference. For example, I marked one here of uh, whoever created these names is so smart. She knows the difference between white chocolate white and minced onion white. 
She knows the difference between man on the moon white and a pale moon white. Oh, and there is a difference. (laughs) But Denise has this word in her life. She can discern the subtle differences between two things that are very similar. So that Hebrew word helps us to say, to look at something and to understand all there is about that, to understand the context of that thing so that we can really know what it is and then we can know what to do about it. Not just to what paint to apply to a wall, but we can look at a situation, we can look at a city and it's good, it's bad, it's ugly from an old Clint Eastwood movie and determine with discernment what we need to do about it. So let's look a little bit at that. Uh, The Hebrew helps us to understand the context of our community. And let me give you this example. In 1942, the Springfield Chamber of Commerce published a promotional booklet to entice industries across the nation to build a factory and to settle down right here in Springfield. And the book promised this to these industries that we have so much to offer the manufacturer and Springfield really did. It had things like a central location, a good uh, transportation system, cheap utilities, low cost of living, a moderate climate. But none of these good qualities that Springfield had was at the top of the list. Instead, in 1942, the Chamber of Commerce highlighted this as a number one attraction for industries to come to Springfield. Said this, few cities can boast of only two and a half percent foreign born. What they were most proud of was Springfield's lack of diversity. They went on and the proudly commenting that the city's labor force was 99.5% American-born white. Proudly, they said. Springfield boasted about our lack of diversity. They were proud that we were 99.5% American white. Well, in 1958, I was two years old, resident of Springfield, couldn't vote yet. But the Springfield Chamber of Commerce did a survey, and they asked all of the establishments in town uh, if they would be willing to serve an African-American. What they learned is that out of 116 restaurants, 76 said, no, we will not serve African-Americans. 11 of those said that they would serve African-Americans in the kitchen of their establishment. Two drive-in theaters would allow blacks. The Landers Theater would have had in their uh, colored, as what they call a colored section in the balcony, and uh, African-Americans could attend on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Only two out of the 22 lodging establishments in Springfield were ones that allowed African-Americans. And the Chamber of Commerce, now think about what they were in 1942, and this is 1958. They grew a lot in those years. 
what they wrote about this survey was this. We feel that the findings of our study are shameful. See, we used to be proud of it. And at least in 58, now then they're ashamed of it. For a city which boasts of its many churches and Christian atmosphere. That's interesting, isn't it? A church that has so many, I mean, a city that has so many churches and claims to be Christian that we would be so discriminatory. I'm so proud of our council in 1958. And which takes such pride in the display of its having been chosen as one of the few all-American cities. We feel that it is shameful that all human beings, regardless of color, who have the price of a meal, the price of a night's lodging, or the price of a theater ticket, can't go into any place of their choosing and receive the same services and treatment according to the persons. If we, the members of the Springfield Chamber of Commerce, wish to make our city a truly all-American city, abiding by the spirit and the letter of our nation's constitution, we will not wait until we are required by a decision handed down by the highest court of our land. We will open all of our privately owned public places to all of our nation's public. Way to go, Springfield Chamber of Commerce. From 1942 to 1958, I'm so thankful for them. But Springfield didn't listen. No businesses changed their practice until 1960. And the reason Springfield changed their practices was due to this man. Richard Nixon was vice president. He was coming to Springfield. The Vice President Nixon said, I will not go to Springfield unless two black reporters who always traveled with President or Vice President Nixon are able to stay at this particular hotel, which at that time was segregated. And so immediately, Springfield really wanted Nixon here. And so stores began to change their policy. Hotels changed their policy almost overnight. Two of those were the Kentwood Arms, which is a hotel, and MSU bought it some years ago, and hers ended segregation. My mom at that time in 1960 worked at Kresge's on the Park Central Square. They changed their policy. Monkey, monkey wards, I always call Montgomery wards, monkey wards. I don't know why I called it that. It may not have been very nice. But Montgomery Wards was on the square at that time, changed their policy, as did so many other people. And today, the Chamber of Commerce is working still to correct the mistakes of our past and to make us more inclusive. But we've got a long way to go. Today, in Springfield, Missouri, only 4% of our population are black. You know, in 42, it was a half percent, but only 4%. We're not making very good progress. I talked to a friend who was African-American, told me about their experiences as a family in Springfield, Missouri, of discrimination. One of them was, at one time, they and their family went to the Y over on Republic Road, got into the swimming pool, and immediately when they stepped into that swimming pool at the YMCA, a group of white people stepped out of the pool. It's at the Y on Republic Road. 
This was not 1950, 1960, 1970. These were, this was in the 90s. We've made great progress. But we've got a long way to go. Springfield's nickname is the Queen City, an irony not lost on our gay community. An article in the Springfield Business Journal said that when it comes to equality in regards to the LGBTQ community, we get an F. Kansas City, Columbia, and St. Louis get 100%, get an A perfect score. Springfield gets 53%. Springfield has done some really good things to create an environment of equality. The one thing that gives us a flunking grade is that Springfield has failed to pass the law that guarantees that there will be no discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And that's on us. That's on the citizens. That's not on our leadership. Our uh, council and our uh, chamber of commerce want that. We just haven't voted to do it. That's on us, absolutely. In the Springfield of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, maybe even into the 80s and 90s, the safest place for the LGBTQ community was in bars. There was a guy named Tom who looked forward to Friday nights when he said, I'd head down to the bar because at least I felt that there was some place where I could be myself. I didn't have to do the don't ask, don't tell sort of thing. And it was kind of like all of a sudden having a whole new world. You know, some of us don't know what it's like to be excluded and do not know what it's like to have people turn their backs on us. I talked to a mixed race uh, married couple a few years ago and uh, trying to understand and uh, empathize with what their experience is since I'm a white guy. And uh, they said, oh, it's not unusual for us to go to Walmart and, or Target and just get dirty looks. And uh, the husband who is black uh, said that I'll be walking down the aisle at the grocery store and a woman will come and be coming toward me with her cart and uh, her purse will be in the top of the cart. She'll take her purse out and clutch it. And uh, we don't know what that's like, most of us. We don't know what it's like to be excluded. We don't know what it's like to be kept out. So we need to be like the tribe of Issachar. We need to have discernment. We need to see the whole. We need to look at a person and see what is that person's experience. Denny Wayne was a member of the Springfield Council, the first black member of the Springfield Council from 2001 into 2009. And he said, when the majority of the people are white, it's easy to think it's not a problem. Because there's not one for the majority of the population. And that's why my heart is to teach and to practice empathy. To see beyond a person's presence and to see their experience and to understand the context of their life. 
I think empathy is the only path toward this great Hebrew concept. I'm so thankful for the Hebrew people and giving us this concept of shalom. And we've just really shortened that and done discredit to that word by just simply saying, yeah, shalom means peace. It does, but it means a community peace, uh, a sense of contentment and fairness and equity for the entire community. And so there would not be shalom if any individual or any group of people does not have the same rights as the whole. If one group is not treated as the other group, then nobody, nobody has peace. And it's not been like that for us. And the entire movement of Hebrew prophet is to create an environment of shalom in which everybody is seen as equal. But we are getting better. Let me show you. Oh, gosh, our clock doesn't work. That's not good for y'all. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man, begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him to the outside of the village. And Jesus spit in the man's eyes, and that's kind of weird. And Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. His eyes were open, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus said to him, don't go to the village. And he's got his own reasons. That's a weird story to me. It's almost like Jesus' healing battery was, was low on a charge. You know, what happened to Jesus? Why didn't it work the first time? I don't have any idea. But what it tells me is that we all see in process. And I don't see clearly at the moment. I have to go through a process of empathy, of understanding before I really see things very clearly. So what I want us to do <clears throat> as we close today, it doesn't seem like we're seeing things clearly fast enough. We get disappointed and discouraged. We kind of grow exhausted about how slow we are to see things as they really are. And I, I listened to Dr. King's statement of his description of the beloved community. And we are so far from the beloved community. And that is Dr. King's way of saying in the Hebrew world, shalom. It's Dr. King's way of describing what Jesus describes as the kingdom of heaven coming to this earth. That's our job. And it seems like we're taking two steps forward and three steps back. So let me just sum up by what this means to me at this time. I need to see better. I need to be patient with others while they're going through the process of seeing. And I need to learn from them as well. Second thing, I need to see everyone in their context. I need to see people in the context of their experience. So I need to listen to people. And I need to provide a safe place for them to express. Another insight from Mr. Wayne, the city councilman. You don't know how I feel, he said, and you'll never know how I feel. And I don't know how you feel, but together we can help each other. 
golly, Bun, that's what I want us to do. Just be together and listen to one another. Another thing that I need to do, I need to look for the flowers growing through the cracks. I look around and I get really discouraged because it seems like a harsh, hard world. But if I will have the eyes, I'll be able to see flowers growing through the cracks. I'll be able to see hope in the middle of despair. I'll be able to see some good things. The fourth thing I need to do is I have to be grounded in a presence. Call that presence God. Call that presence love. Call that presence whatever you want to call that presence. But I need to be grounded in that presence because that presence of love or God gives me the hope in the midst of the despair that things are moving toward a better place. And I have to be grateful and I have to be proud of what Springfield is now compared to what it was. Grateful for the process. And I want to be a part of the process of moving forward. I'm proud of the venues. I'm so proud of the venues. I, I read this story about the guy. He said the only safe place I had was to go to a bar. Another lady said, yeah, the first gay bar I went in, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I am so proud of the venues that we are a place where members of the LGBTQ community can come without having to go to a bar and put up with the issues of, of over-drinking, and they know that they are safe. And that's why the venues has been so very intentional of just creating an image to where a person who has been excluded all of their life, especially from the church world, can walk into this place and know immediately this is a safe place. And you and I will never know what that means. If you're like me, a white cis guy, who I've never been excluded from anywhere in my life. I've never had a door closed. I've never had people look at me. Well, I have had a lot of people look at me weird. <laughs> but not like that. And I'm just so proud of the venues for that. Ten years ago, when the venues first started, I met a guy down at uh, Coffee Ethic. His name is Ethan Bryan. Just a great poet, great person, great writer. And I got this from the Greene County Library, a book of poems by, uh, by Ethan Bryan. And I close with his poem called Roll Call about Springfield. This is why I'm proud. No Homer Simpson, no Abraham Lincoln, no Brad Pitt most days. Though his brother cares about kids learning. Johnny Morris catches bass, blunt, long play politics. Another new Allison building. Goodman, Turner, Graybill, intense. Must be on Broadway. Norman, children. Bentley, commission, kindness. Houghton shines on Saturday nights. Rogers and Bales pitch, Verdon managed, Payne putted, Styles scored, Gold skated, Howard homered, John Q and Glass businessed, O'Reilly kept our cars running, Elvis crooned and spent the night one once, but the most powerful names, leaving ripple effect legacies. Rarely, rarely found in headlines on front pages or going viral. They belong to those quick to volunteer.
quick to give generously, quick to love their neighbor. You make me proud at Springfield because you are quick to volunteer, quick to give generously. You are quick to love all your neighbors. Proud of you. And I apologize for going over time.